Hi, it's Mike Morse. Welcome to another edition of Open Mic. So today we have a really interesting guest. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street. One of my favorite movies, one of the craziest stories. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, was amazing in this film. I know the film won awards, um, but I remember the film being riveting and you couldn't take your eyes off the screen. Today's guest actually worked at the famous firm Stratton Oakmont where that movie or the the um, Wall Street firm that the movie takes place in. This gentleman today, Richard Bronson, actually worked at that firm um, and he is going to tell us about those experiences, uh, what happened after he left, left that firm and about a new organization that he started helping people with criminal backgrounds get jobs. So let's bring Richard Bronson on to open mic. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Did I, was that intro pretty much correct? Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was actually a partner at that firm. What was it called? Stratton, o uh, Stratton Oakmont. Correct. And your yeah. partner, the guy who started it was Jordan. Belfort. Belfort. And who I saw a couple of weeks ago, we both live in Los Angeles. Oh, just bumped into him. No, we, uh, we made plans to, uh, get together. So you guys are still friends. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call the relationship that a friendship. We were exploring business opportunities. Okay. So, I mean, listen, for, for people who have seen the movie, I mean, I think we should start there. Um, what years did you work uh, at Stratton Oakmont? Um, I, I'm from New York and, whoops, uh, I am from New York and uh, I uh, worked on Wall Street in the mid 80s, working at some very big banks uh, that are no longer in business. And I was planning to leave the industry, but I had a friend who was working at Stratton Oakmont, which was this sleepy little uh, brokerage firm based on Long Island, not exactly downtown Wall Street. And uh, he said, you have to come by. You got to check it out. Uh, it's amazing what we're doing and everybody's making a lot of money. So, okay, I did. And um, what I discovered was it was certainly not sleepy at all. There was a huge room of maybe four or 500, almost all young guys, um, you know, who uh, were on the phone, you know, yelling and screaming and carrying on. And uh, this as compared to my prior experience on Wall Street, which, you know, were highly educated people wearing beautiful suits, you know, these were a lot of young guys who perhaps hadn't even completed high school for all I knew. And uh, I was very suspicious um, that they were all making all this money that I had heard, but they were all quick to show me their paychecks. And I said, all right, well, you know, if they can do it, probably I can do it based upon my background. So I got involved and in short order, I became a partner there and I did very, very well. And so just for our viewers and listeners, I mean, this is back in the eighties, 
Yes. Well, it was now we're in the beginning, early, very early 90s. Okay. So just what these paychecks that people are showing you, what are they showing you? What are the numbers? Like, let's just, let's get, let's get into it. What are, how much are people, are these young people, they're calling people, they're selling stocks, they're getting people into financial, you know, investments. What, what are, what were people pulling down there? The good ones were making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a month. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of money, especially today and in the nine, early 90s. It was a lot of money then, and particularly, again, with people for people who you know didn't have any particular talent in managing money or driving investment returns, but they were highly trained uh, salespeople who understood how to sell on the phone. And they also had a spectacular work ethic as well as many people would if you had the chance on any given phone call you could make ten twenty thousand dollars who wouldn't work hard at that and were they and were they putting people in decent um no these were shit these were crap uh, investments yeah um there's no money in i mean you know you can make an argument you know that any given stock big or small could be shit uh, I, in fact, began working on Wall Street in 1987, a week before the infamous market crash, Black Monday, where all of these supposedly good, you know, high, highly capitalized companies, well-known names, they all tanked for no apparent reason, you know, and, you know, this is the era of greed is good and, you know, and Gordon Gecko. And um, there was a pervasive attitude on Wall Street. I think it still exists, just a lot less, you know, overtly, whereby, um, A, it's a zero-sum game. It's either you're going to make money or I'm going to make money, you know? And um, it sure as hell ain't going to be you. And when the markets gyrate for no apparent reason, you know, it's very easy to become cynical. Like, what difference does it make? I could have the best of intentions and it'll still tank and it has nothing to do with me. And if this is going to happen and if people are going to be mad at me, I sure as hell ought to at least be making money doing it. So that was sort of the justification, you know, and that, you know, is the way people who are otherwise, you know, moral and honest can deal with that cognitive dissonance of how am I, you know, actively doing things that I know are going to hurt my client. Well, if, if they're going to be hurt, no matter what, you know, at least let one of us make some money out of it. Got it. So you, you saw this happening. Um, and, and as you're touring the firm, as you were there for how many years were you there total? About a year and a half total. I mean, what we saw in the movie, the drugs, the women, the drinking, the partying, the helicopters, um, how true was all that? It was all true. Um, you know, certainly this is a Martin Scorsese film. So there's a certain beauty and elegance to all of his films yeah. that everybody looks better looking and the environment is always, it's perfectly well lit and everything is romantic and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, a lot of these young guys, you know, again, as I say, weren't particularly educated you know, so, you know, it wasn't Shakespeare that they were spewing, but as it related to the sex and drugs and rock and roll, it was very, very accurate. 
we all, I won't say all, that's a mistake, almost all of us took a lot of drugs. Our drug of choice were quaaludes, which were widely available at the time. And quaaludes, um, for those who don't know, you know, through direct experience or otherwise, are a drug, I mean, purport, or they were created to be uh, sleeping pills. Where, but if in fact you take a, a, a quaalude or two or three and you have a shot of vodka, which was my drink of choice, um, and you manage to avoid going to sleep, which is sort of you got to fight that off. Once you do that, you have this incredibly positive feeling of euphoria. It's the kind of like what you like when you're drinking, except without all the you know, the noise, your head isn't spinning, you're not, you don't get nauseous at the end of the night, you get a good night's sleep for sure. And it completely eliminates inhibitions so that you can go talk to anybody, you can say anything to any person you might be interested in, any girl that's out there, you know, um, and as a result, it leads to just incredibly over-the-top experiences. And we used to take drugs during the day, and certainly we would go out at night, and, you know, we would spend a lot of time together, you know, like Goodfellas, another Scorsese film, yeah. where, you know, we were all sort of in the same circle, and we, we took vacations together, we traveled together, and we had a lot of fun together. And, I, I mean, honestly, I never laughed so hard in my life. Um, I'm very ashamed and embarrassed by my behavior. I'm ashamed by the fact that we were so disrespectful to people who weren't, you know, as far as we were concerned, they weren't making a lot of money. They were driving, you know, some crummy car, and therefore they were somehow below, beneath contempt as far as we were concerned. It was awful. It's terrible. I, th this is 30 years ago for me, and I still regret that behavior. And it's something I can never take back. You know, I can only be better. But um, tell me, tell, tell our tell our viewers and listeners what one of the craziest stories that you personally experienced when you were there. Something that would shock me. Well, I think I think the most um, you know shocking behavior occurred when we we were all gamblers. You know, we'd all go to casinos all the time. And of course, these casinos, um, you know, I assume they operate the same way. Um, they have an interest in cultivating what they call whales to come to their casinos and, you know, bet extravagantly with the theory that, you know, over time, the odds are in their favor and they're going to make a lot of money doing it. Um, we were definitely, you know, the, the targets of that or willing participants of that. And we used to have, you know, private jets taking us wherever we wanted to go. And I certainly was one of, you know, the big gamblers. And I continued that after I left the firm and started my own. And, you know, we would gamble a great deal. We, we, would, we would never travel alone. We always had an entourage you know, and there were always lots and lots of people who wanted to get in on the fun, naturally. And I would typically, you know, have a jet sent to me to take me to Vegas or sent to me to go to Monaco or, or locally, you know, Atlantic City. Helicopters would come and pick us up off the roof. 
And, you know, I would travel with 10 or 12 people and they would, you know, essentially like give us the floor of the, you know, one floor of the hotel of the casino. And I'd walk into my suite and it was, you know, with gifts and, you know, expensive wines and lobsters and caviar and all kinds of, you know, opulence, you know, uh, they're, they're thinking that they had to compete with other casinos and they would all try to outdo each other, um, you know, to garner our, you know, our, our favor uh, or my favor very, very often and to come to the casino. Um, so there were always, you know, certain big events where a lot of us would go. And there were certain among us who just were very, very big gamblers. And I, there was one guy who I was very good friends with. I don't want to mention his name, but he sat at a blackjack table for um, something like 60 hours straight, you know? <laughs> and he was up $2 million. He was down a million dollars. But he just kept going and going and going. At a certain point, he just passed out. But that was about as extreme as I ever thought. But yeah. I certainly, there were times I'd go to a casino for a weekend and I would lose a million dollars or I won a million dollars, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of it had to do with the drugs. You know, when you become so jaded and cynical, you you're, you're really become like a sensation junkie. You know, you're looking for things that actually give you a feeling because you so desensitized yourself because you have to because, you know, inside you're leading a life that's criminal, essentially. You're doing wrong. And, you know, how do you accept that within yourself other than to try to anesthetize yourself? And by doing that, you know, very little gets through. Very little real emotion or real happiness or real sorrow or connection gets through. So you really have to constantly be pushing yourself for more and more to get, you know, to get off. Well, essentially. I mean, fascinating stories, but it sounds like that, you know, when you have as much money as you were making and, and as fast as you guys were making it, you know, you'd have to win or lose a million dollars just to feel something. Yes. That's or a normal true. guy would lose or win a thousand dollars and feel something you had to lose a million dollars just to get a reaction out of yourself. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, I mean, you develop a tolerance, you know, you're a junkie of a different sort and you have to do more and more, you know, to, to, to get that excitement. So you, you know, make, so you go ahead. I'm sorry, Richard. I was going to say, you know, I'm thinking, you know, other extreme events, I, I um, almost killed myself several times. I, on, I, on purpose? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. By no. accident? By accident in a, in a stupor, you know, like I had, I, had two, I had a number of Ferraris over the course of this period of time, and I destroyed two of them because I was just messed up, and I thought I was driving safely, and of course I wasn't. I wasn't felt, there a scene like that in the movie? When he's driving his Ferrari, yes, uh, his Lamborghini, Lamborghini, actually. yes, yeah, and and you know that's just what happens. Imagine, you know, if you take a bunch of quaaludes and you drink, and you always do it on an empty stomach because you feel the impact even more. You know, it is a formula for disaster. There's no question about it. You're gonna. It's just a question of when. You know, they're gonna be. You're gonna have to pay the price. So. You know, I'm, I, I'm amazed that I'm alive, you know, and I'll be honest with you. 
Quaaludes, and I think a lot of people feel this way who had their dalliances with Quaaludes. Um, it was a drug that people loved. I loved it. And, and again, one nice thing about it, as opposed to say cocaine, where, you know, you take cocaine and then at the end of the night, you just want to go to sleep, but you can't. So you have to keep doing it and then you crash and it's a miserable feeling. With Quaaludes at the end of the night, when it's time to say, all right, I had enough, you get a great night's sleep because basically it's a sleeping pill. So um, if they were, they stopped making them because they were abused so readily. Um, and if they were still making them, I'm not, sh I can't swear that I wouldn't have continued taking them forever, you know, because it, it really was the dr my, my drug of choice as, as many others. I've actually heard people who used to take them. I've never taken uh, one that, that they wish they were still around. Yeah. Um, and that it's interesting. I, I, I over, actually, he wasn't even a friend. Was, I overheard this conversation. I asked about it and he said the same thing. He thought it was the most perfect drug. And I'm sh surprised that somebody hasn't figured out how to reproduce them. Yeah. Um, you but, know, I guess it's just, it was just too good right. we, <laughs> for well, the world. <laughs> So, all right, let's fast forward. So, Richard, you're making millions of dollars. You're here for a year and a half, and you left uh, Stratton Oakmont. What was the impetus to leaving? Um, we had this big group of, you know, we were all friends, and we were all in cahoots with each other. And the way the stock, the over-the-counter stock market works, and that is primarily what we were involved with, where small penny stocks trade. Um, we, uh, there are advantages by having multiple firms operating in cahoots, so to speak. Um, not to get too technical about it, but, you know, if you had a firm at, if you had friends at one firm and another firm, whatever, you could more easily manipulate the markets to your advantage. Interesting. So there was an opportunity for me and this other guy uh, to acquire a tiny brokerage firm in Florida, South Florida, and we jumped at the opportunity whereby we would become, you know, qu uh, an offshoot of Stratton Oakmont. We'd all be continue being in cahoots with each other, except this would be at mine, ours, and theoretically we'd make a lot more money and we'd be, you know, the king of that, of that particular operation. So that's what we did. I left New York and moved to South Florida. And within a year, a year and a half, we had hundreds of people working for us. Um, and we followed sort of the game plan that, you know, we were familiar with from Stratton. And wh whereas before I was making a lot of money, now I was making a lot of, a lot of money. Well, I saw numbers up to $100 million a year. That's what, well, I didn't make that. The firm did, yes. We, we you're taking home a good percentage of that. I was. I was. And, and now I became, my whole life took on a whole other level. I became an art collector and I became a, uh, uh, I, I, I st um, started a nightclub on South Beach and I published a magazine and I became the chairman of the board of the Miami City Ballet in my quest for respectability. You know, so, and I lived on the beach next to Eric Clapton and, you know, wow. it, sort of, it was all elevated at that point. And, you know, compared to New York, which is a big pond, you got to be really be a big shot to be a big shot in New York. 
in southern Florida, Miami, and this is when things were just starting getting hot and in you know Miami and South Beach and that whole thing, it was much easier to be a big shot. So I was very much a big shot, you know, in Southern Florida. And 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 all the while trying to gain respectability, making tens of millions of dollars, yep. knowing that every day you are committing crimes. Yes. And you I, are and you're taking advantage. I mean, let's let's just I just want to understand this part real quick. So you, you admitted earlier that, you know, you're selling these penny stocks and you're selling whatever stocks you can make money on. And it was not illegal to sell those stocks, but you, it was dishonest the way you were selling them. It sounds like part of it was our sales practices, excuse me, were dishonest, but the more significant things were how we, we were able to manipulate the marketplace itself. And we could drive a stock up or down, you know. But, we were, you, but were people making money? The people you were selling the stocks to, were you, was it like a Madoff situation, not a Ponzi scheme situation? But were these people losing everything to invest? Chances are, first of all, let me, let, let, I need to disabuse you of, you know, perhaps the people that we had as clients, what we learned, and it wasn't out of altruism at all, we learned that you can make the most money not by dealing with widows and orphans, but rather by dealing with business people who make a lot of money and have a lot of disposable income. And particularly those people who have a bunch of different brokerage accounts. There's a whole lot of people out there, people are often surprised to, to learn this, but there are people out there who, you know, they make in a couple of million dollars a year and they've been making it for 20 years, they have their own business, they have disposable income, and they have lots of brokerage accounts. This is the way it was then, certainly. I think it's less so now, but they have lots of brokerage accounts, and they're sort of in their own way junkies, and they love the action, and they love hearing about the latest stock, and they love feeling like they're on the inside. Some of them are actually professional investors. And these are guys who really, you know, not many people would feel a great deal of sympathy for because they're trying to get over on us as we're trying to get over on them, you know, and that was very frequently the case. You know, we were, we dealt in IPOs, initial public offerings. That's where these stocks could, because we would create this huge demand and for a stock with limited supply, whereby it would be initially priced at $3 and it could go to $30 on the day. So every wise guy out there, every wannabe player out there, every hedge fund out there, you know, professional people who know what the hell they're doing, presumably, they wanted in on this and they figured they could beat us. We knew that they couldn't because like the casinos we would frequent, we were the house. And we had the ability to make things on our say-so go up and down. So really, they didn't have a chance. Um, so we, they might make money initially, and that might be even part of the strategy, you know, give them a taste of making money and go for the long con, you know, so to speak, uh, and suck them in that way. It was, you know, completely wrong and bad. And, you know, something I knew it all along I was doing was wrong, but my feeling was everybody on Wall Street does it. And I don't know that everyone does, but lots do. 
And I worked at big companies where it went on rampantly. So what the hell, you know, I'm not so bad. This is just the real world. Grow up, you know, be real. Um, and that's what you tell yourself while you're taking drugs to sort of diminish, you know, the, the anguish that you're not a good guy because everybody thinks they're a good guy. Um, I have no excuse. I knew it was wrong. I came from a nice family. I had a good college education. You know, um, and I knew eventually I would pay the price for it, which I ultimately, of course, did. So take us to you. You've painted a really good picture, Richard, of your life up until this point. And one day at your office, you're at your office and the feds walk in. Tell take us through that or, or yeah, something to that effect. I mean, yeah, I, take, I left the business at a certain point because. I was so disgusted with myself and I just felt I couldn't continue leading this lie, you know, and I don't want to suggest that this, I had this epiphany, you know, religious experience. It was just this cumulative thing, like, you know, something, I just can't do this anymore. I know it's wrong and it just doesn't, you know, jive with how I, how I'd like to be or how I see myself. And it certainly isn't consistent with the way my parents brought me up or what they would hope for me, for sure. Um, so I left the business and I, you know, I was out of it for a few years, but I still knew that I would have to, at a certain point, you know, deal with the consequences because um, I, I was aware that all my past cohort, you know, all the people I used to, be in business with uh, this cast of characters, one by one, they were, you know, going through their own legal problems. And I knew, you know, it was just a question of time before they came knocking on the door to me. So they, I was in a completely different business. And um, there's a, you know, someone walked into my office, two people walked into my office, a man and a woman, and I had no idea who they were. And they said, we'd like to talk to you. And I looked at them and I said, who are you, you know, whatever. And the guy lifted up his sport jacket and there was a badge and I saw a gun at his hip. And I immediately know who they were. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure which agency, is this the FBI or the postal workers or the US Marshal or whatever, but uh, I, knew, I knew it was somebody, uh, I knew where things were gonna go very, very quickly. Um, they said, we'd like to talk to you. And I said, and they were very polite. And I said, you know, I appreciate that. Um, you know, he's, I think he said something like, you know, we've taken care of your other friends, you know, now it's your turn, essentially like that. Hmm. And I said, I understand, but, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to cooperate at this point before I talk to my attorney. And they said, that's fine. You know, here's our card you know, and have your attorney get back to us. And they were very polite, you know, and I was polite to them. They were doing their job. And there was a part of me that felt very, very good about the fact that they were there because this had been hanging over me for so long. And, you know, I desperately wanted to, A, have it resolved if possible, and B, more importantly, find you know, deal with my, the guilt that I felt and, and, and sort of pay the price and, and have the opportunity to atone for what I had done. Because 
as it was, you know, I, 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 I was just miserable with myself and I was racked with shame and that was no way for me to lead a life. That was my experience. Other people didn't have, you know, I understand, didn't have such a tough moral time dealing with this, but this is, you know, what I went through. So I, in a way I felt like, all right, thank God, at least, you know, one chapter is ending, there's a new one. And, you know, prior to them showing up, I had a partner in, our, in this business and he and I made a decision to pay everybody back, independent of any particular pressure that we were under. You know, it's true that we, we, we knew eventually they were gonna come for us knocking on the door. And if we've paid everybody back, it stood to reason that that would make our case, you know, a little more defensible perhaps, you know. Um, and are these investors you're talking about you paid yeah, back? Yes, yes. So you paid everybody back? Yes. And I'm going to jump a little bit because of time and I want to talk about what you're doing now, but, but ultimately you pled guilty to something. You got 22 months in federal prison, I assume. Correct. And, um, and you mentioned one of the other articles I read about you that you thought that was a pretty lenient sentence, but, but you think you got the lenient sentence because you paid everybody back. Yeah, um, I, I would, I would, I think so. Yeah. Um, additionally, what I had done, and again, I am very, very hesitant to, to even mention things that may smack of me trying to rehabilitate myself or, you know, make myself a better guy than I was. Because again, I have no excuses. I did things I'm ashamed of, and I, thirty years later, I'm equally ashamed. But. A, we paid everybody back, and I still was left with quite a bit of money. I had this incredible home and art and, you know, and millions and millions of dollars. Um, I gave it all away to charity, a variety of different charities. Money, I was so sick of money and what it had done to me, and the only thing that made me feel even remotely a little bit better that I was a human being was if I tried to do something altruistically, you know, not with fanfare, not to let people know, but I just gave away a huge amount of money all over the place. And I was left with nothing, literally nothing. Um, when the judge sentenced me, he said, I've never seen a case like this before. A, you paid everybody back. And B, we tracked down money because almost everybody hides their money or offshore, or they dig a hole or something. He goes, you have, you have no money. And I said, that's right, judge. And he's, you know, um, I said, I gave it to charity. And he, he, of course, said, well, it wasn't your money to give away. And I said, maybe not, but at least, you know, at least my heart was in the right place. And I thought, you know, in doing that. Right. But yeah, I think that in doing that and um, I was treated, I, you know, I have to say, you know, they treated me reasonably well under the circumstances. They wanted me to cooperate and help bring cases against other people. I told them I was not willing to do that because, um, you know, I wasn't willing to ruin somebody else's life to save my own ass. That, that was something that, that would, I'd never, ever, you know, lose that bad feeling if I did that. I'd never respect myself. And I think they respected that, the fact that, you know, I could have avoided probably prison had I helped them wear a wire and bring cases, but I just wasn't willing to do it. 
And I think, you know, they treated me respectfully and I have no complaints. And I was happy to go to prison because in prison, it's the one place where everybody's guilty and you don't have to feel like you're such a pariah by being there. No one's judging you. Well, not yeah. everybody's guilty because I'm working on some innocence cases right now that you and I talked about for a half a minute, but you admit you were guilty. Yeah. No, and that's I'm, what matters. percent that everybody is, is not guilty. I'm, what I really meant to say, it's a joke that if people who go to prison, they joke about the fact that everybody in prison claims they're not guilty. Okay. That I get. Uh, believe me, my work brings me to loads of people who either they were not guilty at all, or there was so, so such mitigating circumstances, you know, they were with someone who did something wrong and they couldn't afford a lawyer and they just got caught up in the right. system. And that's the cases that I'm seeing and helping with. And, so where, and, where, where were you in federal prison? Uh, initially at Eglin, which was the original um, club fed where they put the Watergate uh, burglars and then there was a hurricane and we had to like bug out of there and they sent us to a few others, including Yazoo City, Mississippi at a medium high. And that was a dose of real adult prison that, um, you know, scared the hell out of all of us. And then I also um, ended up in Rikers Island for a while because I missed a court date unrelated to my case, but sort of related. And I was in prison, so they issued a bench warrant. I didn't know that I had a case, you know? And um, I, I got out of prison and two days, I'm at my sister's apartment. At this point, I'm homeless, I'm destitute, and I have nothing, but at least I'm out of prison. And there's a dot knock on the door at my sister's apartment. It's New York City detectives. We have a warrant for your arrest. And I said, what are you talking about? I've been out of prison for all of two days. What could I have possibly done? And it took a while for them to figure out what happened. So they had to extradite. It was just, and I really felt like I'm in the system and I understood how people, particularly those who can't afford attorneys and who are abused by the system, I, I just went through that. And Rikers is no place for anybody any human being to spend any time at all. That was pretty bad. Tommy, did you ever lay there at Rikers or even in the, in the cushier federal penitentiaries and think about the helicopter rides and the quaaludes and the booze and the women and the, and the tens of millions of dollars of art hanging on your walls and, and just can't, I mean, what, what could that feeling be like that, that that's where you were at this point in time, the juxtaposition and position yep. in, in just a couple of years Ooh, is shocking. Probably. Yes. In, in fact, yes, I used to, my head was constantly shaking in dumbfound, dumbfounded amazement. Like what the hell happened to my life that I went from this, this precipitous drop you know, and how did this happen? I, I, I sort of visualized it as like when a toilet is flushing and it's swirling inexorably lower and lower and lower. That was sort of my life. And how do I stop this? But, you know, I mean, I, I gained out of going to, I gained from the experience. I learned about humility, you know, which I, I terribly needed a dose of when you're scrubbing toilets for a bunch of guys in prison. You know, you know, if, if you still think you're a big shot, you, you know, you're living in a dream world and, you know, it sort of cut me down to size and it gave me humility 
And it also helped me figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I, I study Buddhism and I believe in karma. And my karma is such that I did things, you know, that have repercussions. And I'd like to do anything I possibly can do to sort of counterweigh, you know, that balance. So I discovered that my calling in life essentially is to help my brothers and sisters getting out of jail and prison so that they would have a better life and more opportunities than I did. So um, I worked for a while at a nonprofit organization that deals with reentry. It was very satisfying, but ultimately I didn't feel like we were having enough impact. So I decided I'm going to launch a company and we're going to help people get jobs. And we're going to do it as a for-profit venture and we're going to employ technology. So none of that had never been done before. And people would thought it, I was crazy. Uh, it certainly took us a while to figure things out, but we ended up helping thousands of people get jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very proud of that. Of course, when the coronavirus hit, or oh, everybody that's in the employment business, and certainly, you know, in the area of the market that we're in, took a terrible hit. And, you know, so we've sort of pivoted our business Right now, we're building out something called Commissary Club. Commissary.club is the URL. And it is the first social network for people with records. People with records um, have nothing like this, whereby there's no connection. Um, people with records don't have each other available for inspiration or for help or to make connections for them. They live very solitary in the shadows, ashamed, you know, fearful of rearing their head, much like, you know, women used to, much like African-Americans did before civil rights, much like LGBTQ community, whereby they were, you know, demeaned and denigrated and marginalized and treated much less than being a first-class citizen, more like a third-class citizen, deprived of livelihood, deprived of housing, you know? And that ain't right. You know, people do their time, guilty or not, they do their time. They weren't sentenced to a life sentence. They were sentenced for a year or 10 years or 30 years. At that point, they should have a life and the opportunity to be happy. But that's the given the stigma they all walk around with, that I walk around with, you never have that opportunity. And it's a life sentence that we bear. And I think, we think, my team and I think that's wrong, particularly this era of Black Lives Matter, that it's time for this population to say enough is enough. We demand what we deserve as human beings and as US citizens, and we want a place at the table. And, you know, if it means we have to push our way in like women did through the women's movement or the civil rights movement or whatever, you know, the time has come, we think. So we're creating this site to bring people together, to recognize their collective power economically, politically. Mike, this is a population, 70 million. One in three adults have a record. This population could elect anybody it wants if they were only galvanized together. Let's you know, hope they do this November. Let's hope they do. <laughs> I'm doing, we, we are, believe me, now more than ever, we are committed to helping people 
you know, get registered, find out what their rights are. You know, there's a law, uh, you know, lots of people go, as you know, go away to prison or jail, and they're released under parole or probation under supervised release. And there are terms to that conditional supervised release that include you may not socialize with someone with a record. Well, people come out of prison or jail, they don't know, you know, they've been down for a while. Who, who do you think they know? They know other people that come from their backgrounds who have a record. Who helps them get a job? Who helps them find a place to live? And who? where do they go even for friendship? What are they supposed to do? Be completely alone and yeah. solitary? That doesn't make any, I, I, you know what? I, I don't know if, does every state have that? Because I, I have a friend here who was wrongfully convicted and actually his, so his, his, he started an apartment building for people who get out, but if maybe they're all exonerees, so that wouldn't trip that law. But that, that's a, that's a screwed up law that they can't uh, talk to people with a record. But also one thing that I read, you know, you're trying to change some laws. So when somebody applies for a job, they don't have to check that box that they have a record. Most state have states have adopted that already. It's the ban the box. They, whereby companies can't ask that early on in the process. Theoretically, if they had that information, they would never get to know the individual. So it's it's definitely a good thing that most states have adopted it. But the truth is that it doesn't really practically matter much when they find out. They eventually do because they eventually make sure that the person submit to a background check where the truth comes out. And the theory is, well, if they've gotten to know them and they've interviewed them, they fall in love with this candidate, they're going to look past their record. And that's true sometimes, but in reality, very rarely. You know, there is such amount, such a huge amount of negative bias towards people with records and a lot there's implicit racism because about two thirds of these folks are, are men and women of color. So on that point, Richard, obviously I have, I mean, I haven't d- dove into your website, but you're getting employers on board who will hire people with records, obviously. Right. That's what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, how do you convince them or what are their biggest objections besides the obvious ones? Like how do you convince these big companies to take a chance um, on someone who's made a mistake in the past? Um, I'm not sure that I've ever been able to, to make a big comp change a big company's mind. Ultimately, big and, and we work with big companies. They have, you know, legal departments, for example, and their job is not to be altruistic and progressive. It's just the opposite. It's Good to point. mitigate risk and avoid the problem. So why should you take on this risk? Because imagine the, you know, what's going to happen if the person, you know, acts poorly. Um, The truth is, interestingly enough, that people with records, um, there's a high likelihood that they will be rearrested, but almost always they're unemployed when they're rearrested. People with jobs almost never, ever get in trouble again. That's what the data shows clearly. But still... You know, the optics of a company hiring someone and then them getting into trouble, you know, could be, you know, really bad in the press and their clients and the co-workers and all that. The only thing 
Now, there are some companies out there that feel it's important and the right thing to do and their corporate responsibility to provide people in their communities in which they do business second chances. Most don't feel that way. But what we had going for us up until the onset of the coronavirus was historically low unemployment. At 3.5%, companies, particularly companies that did manufacturing and warehouse and shipping and food service and construction, they were almost desperate to get bodies to fill positions. There were millions of jobs that were unfilled. Mm. And out of that desperation, companies recognized they had to access alternative non-traditional sources of talent or else the, you know, the implications would have been much, much worse. So that we had going for us. When the coronavirus hit, all of our people were let go because you can't work from home working in a where if you if you have a warehouse job or if you're working at McDonald's, you know, right. and and the hourly workers were the first to go. I have read a statistic that as men as much as forty three percent of people with records are currently unemployed. Forty three percent. You know, it's it's a huge number. And if you just consider what, what, the, what are the implications of that, you know, if, if you need to eat, if you're going to get, if you have a family, many of these folks have, you know, you got to have a roof over your head for your kids. You know, what parent wouldn't do anything it took to prevent their kid from being out on the street homeless. So they commit a crime and they, you know, and the whole cycle of recidivism just keeps chugging along, you know, you know, and it just never, ever ends. Um, so it's desperate. It's dire right now. Well, ho hopefully this coronavirus will be over soon. Hopefully we'll get some new leadership in this country who will take us in a new direction and, and, and improve things. And, uh, hopefully your website will be back up and running, uh, full bore. Cause it sounds like, well, it's, it's... we've launched commissary.club, okay. which includes employment, but it also now includes housing and medical and classes and all, all for all for people who have, have a record exclusively for exclusively. people who have a record. All right. So we're going to publicize all of these links. Um, you know, we'll get the word out here. And um, th I mean, those that, that's some that's that's those are meaningful programs that are needed. And I have some ideas that I will talk with you outline uh, offline on some people here who are doing some good things with exonerees, which is a different tact because they don't, did you know, Richard, that if you're exonerated from prison, they do not have any parole rights like you have did you know that? I didn't know that until recently. So you get out of prison and you have um, benefits and you have resources and you have people there to help you from the government. Safety net, theoretically. You have a safety net with lots of different governmental programs. If you're an exoneree, you, you get nothing. You get nothing. Right. And these people are just as messed up, if not more so, because they were in prison for 10, 20, 30 years and never committed the crime in the first place. And so that that's a unique problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah, you would think that should be high on the list because these poor people did nothing wrong and somebody made them a, a terrible mistake or, or worse. Or or fraud or yeah, exactly. bad or prosecutors, bad cops, whatever. bad judges. But that's a different story. 
uh, for a different day. Richard Bronson, I really appreciate it. I know you mentioned before we got on that you still talk to Jordan Belfort. What's he up to these days for the people who are fans of the movie? He, um, he was a master um, salesperson and a trainer of salespeople. That was, you know, at the base of, of, of all this money being made where you had people who were highly trained and working very hard. And that was the formula. He continues to do sales training globally. Companies hire him and they bring him in and pay him a lot of money to train their sales force. And uh, if you were to Google him, you could find his business online. And he's been very, very successful with that. And uh, people know him and, you know. He found a job after prison. He did. He definitely did. He how did. many uh, How many years did he go away for? Um, not that long. Interesting. I remember at the end of the movie, they say it. And I haven't seen the movie in a couple of years, so I don't remember. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. I enjoy it. I, I was I, I was in the book that he wrote, but thankfully I was not depicted directly in the movie, you know, did, which I feared. Did you consult? No. Okay, no. for the movie. I, I, I wouldn't have been involved with it. I, I'm ashamed of it. I wanna put it behind me. I don't I don't take pride in it. The producer of my uh podcast here, uh Ryan thinks that you look like Rob Reiner a little bit. I've who was in that. who was in your movie? Or in the movie. Yes. He was Jordan's father, actually. Right. Um, I've heard it used to be when I was younger and thinner, I used to get Jack Nicholson. Oh. Now I get Rob Reiner. So the years are not being good to me. <laughs> I love Rob Reiner. Come on, meathead. Yeah. Um, anyway, man, it was good to meet you. Keep Thank up you. the good work. Um, fascinating story. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me and continued success with your good work, too. Thank you. Thanks for watching Open Mic. Today we had Richard Bronson on, the CEO of 70 Million Jobs. He also used to work for Jordan Belfort at Stratton Oakmont, where the Wolf of Wall Street film was, what the Wolf of Wall Street film was depicted on. Fascinating conversation. Share it with your friends. Subscribe to our podcast. Let me know who else you want me to get on this podcast and ask some questions to because we want to put on some more interesting content for you and we're always hoping to hear from our viewers and listeners. So please let us know, share the podcast and have a great day.